Welcome to Mostly Talk, a podcast about business or an excuse to hear from some interesting people. We'll leave that up to you. Find out more at mostly.consulting. Welcome to Mostly Talk. I'm James Brewster, the host. Thanks to Chris Ewing of the Caledonia Braves for last week's episode. Uh, this week we are speaking to Professor Jonathan Wilson, who's a lecturer in branding and culture. He is a four times LinkedIn top voice and a really inspiring bloke. We talk about rugby, Dundee, uh, his lecturing career, life in general, lockdown uh, and all sorts of stuff <laughs> associated with branding, which is kind of fun. So hopefully enjoy this show. Cheers. It's uh, this year's Christmas episode, if you like. So I'm uh, wearing a Christmas jumper if you check out the videos online. Cheers. Professor Jonathan Wilson, how are you? Yeah, I'm all good. <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how's your week been? Mental. Um, no, work has been full on. Like, you know, every, this is like the last two weeks before we can all kind of take a break, right? So full of lectures, full of admin, full of meetings, full of COVID-19 preparation plans because who knows when we'll get the vaccine and 2021 is going to be like the empire strikes back to 2020s and new hope star wars um <laughs> and then the sport has been full on right like i know that you're a rugby fan so yeah yeah england france game i never saw it but it looked it looked like a good one yeah what is that because you're scottish or like no i, I don't have it was on it was on channel four sky it was on amazon I, prime I should have watched it. I just was busy and had young kids and stuff. I never, I don't know. I did tend not to get much time in front of the TV. And if I do, it's Peppa Pig type stuff. But. Teach them. <laughs> teach them. I remember yeah. like my, my youngest, she was in like one of those papooses, like when the World Cup was on. Brilliant. So I tried yeah. to indoctrinate her. A beer but... holder as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sudden, <laughs> yeah, sudden death was like crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I caught the highlights. It looked, it looked immense. Yeah. All the kicks that are getting missed. And then obviously like this week with football, like Champions League. I've been watching Barcelona Juventus. I don't want to mention Manchester United because they just depressed me. But are you a Manchester uh, fan? You, you spent a lot of time in Manchester, is that right? I was born in Manchester, mate. You are okay. Yeah, yeah. So Manchester's like my local team. Okay. So the but your 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 sort of life story. You kind of born in Manchester, moved to Dundee. Your folks, or you kind of. Uh... Um. So so this is yeah. This is the full story. So, uh, my dad's Scottish. So he was born in Edinburgh. Uh, but then, like, I was born in Manchester, so I, I like lived in Manchester until the age of eighteen, and then I went to university in Dundee for six years, okay. and then, but but then, because my dad's Scottish and we've got family in Perthshire and Dumfries and Galloway, then all of my school holidays from about the age of seven have basically revolved around going to Dumfries and Galloway. So yeah. that's why I'm making up for traveling later life. Apart from a couple of school trips, I think I went to the Caribbean once to see my mom's family, but literally every school holiday, it was like Scottish beach, Dumfries and Galloway. 
Um, so that that's the Scottish connection. And then, yeah, Dundee, because I was there for six years and that you, you pick up a, just a different vibe, right? And uh, pick up a Dundonian accent and... I saw you. I saw you in your kilt at one of your graduations. Do you tend to? Would you say you're Scottish, or do you have a, a sense of loyalty to Scotland at all, or Scotland England on the TV? Who do you support? Uh, Scotland. Oh, it's. <laughs> you know what it is? I've chilled out a bit. Like now that I've got older. I mean, I played. I played rugby for England schools. Wow. So, um, so from a but I always aspired to play as an adult for Scotland. Mm-hmm. I was. I was going to be like. I had it in my head. I was going to be like the first black player to play for Scotland at rugby. And then I basically got distracted at university <laughs> by guitars and, and like <laughs> rock bands. And uh, the rugby scene at university wasn't so cool. <laughs> it was pretty cringeworthy. Who did you play for in Dundee though? There was, there was quite um, I played for the university. Okay. So I played for the university first 15. And I remember like one time we beat Tayside Police 107 nil. <laughs> <laughs> That was like, that felt so NWA. That was literally like, you know, <laughs> forget the police. <laughs> 107 nil. <laughs> you know, it, it was would, so I cool. thought they'd be, they'd be quite tough guys as well, the police officers. So did I. I was up for it. I was pumped. Um, but no, I, w- I wanted to play for Scotland. But then you got to think that like back then, uh, there was no social media. There's no internet. So so one of the things, if I, if I reflect back on my, the mistakes that I made, when I left England to go to university in Scotland, I basically cut off that communication, and I got offered, um, I got offered like a, a place at, at one of the clubs, like kind of semi-pro because it was just about to turn pro. So, yes, uh-huh. if you think about like my era, so uh, like you know at county level, division level, I played with uh, Will Greenwood, wow, um, Austin Healy, uh, Andy Gomesall. People like that who then made it on. So, like, you did know, did they stand I, out as greats at the time? Did you do? Did you sort of see themselves as just guys that tried a bit harder and were bigger and stuff? Do you want, shall I be totally honest? Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna like they, don't, they probably don't remember who I am, right? Because, uh, but so Will Greenwood was always good. Hmm. I really liked. So I loved playing on uh, with Will Greenwood because he was just a stand-up guy. He got the job done, and at the time, like, he was actually playing fly half. And so he was a big fly half, so he could he could take a lot of damage, but he was cool, and and yeah. everyone everyone really like respected and liked him. Um, Austin Healy, a bit more of a nice sort of arrogance to him in a way, kind of a bit more cocky type attitude. But Man, in a nice I didn't, way, I, I didn't like I didn't like him. <laughs> if I'm to be honest, right? Uh, because like, I'm wearing my in fact I'm wearing my first county shirts. I played for Lancashire, and this is my. You, looks, yeah. Under 16 shirts. I got this. This is my first county cap when I was 15, right? So uh, Austin played for Cheshire. And he was, I remember that he was always a pain in the backside. Like he was a trickster. He was known, like he would do these things where he'd get the rugby ball and say to the ref, I'm not going to go for goal. So we think that he was going for goal. And then he would like tap and go and score a try. He was just like a pain. And and I guess one of the reasons why I hate him even was I was going for like, I was going for one of the England trials and I dislocated my collarbone because he commissioned the opposing number eight to basically destroy me. <laughs> so that's why I have a lot of like venom because I remember then having to like, like go back home, 50 mile ride, like in my rugby kit and sit in A&E for like four or five hours. That's sore and as well, it, isn't it? Oh man, having a dislocated collarbone and then, and thinking, okay, I've uh, like, 
it's really affected my chances of getting in the squad now because I've got to recover and then fight my way back. So, yeah, I don't have good vibes on him. But Gomasol, I have good vibes on him. <laughs> he was, no, distribution, fantastic. Always pass the ball, uh, selfless, well, you're great in the team player. Must have been, were you, where were you? What position did you play? Oh, uh, so I played, uh, I started off at eight and then I went to seven. Okay. So I think, you know, eight is cool because you you get your hands on the ball when the scrum, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically like, I remember like there was one game I played and I got a double hat trick because the coach said, okay, like, you know, you have permission this game. And I just, <laughs> I just picked up the ball all the time. All, all of the parents and all of my team hated me, but I got six tries. I was like, only celebrating on my own at the end. <laughs> it's such a great um, sport, isn't it? It's, it's, it takes all types of different sizes and shapes. Yeah, it's like but as an eight, I mean, the thing was, I the English mentality, a number eight is pretty much like a like a more mobile second row. Yes. Yeah. Like a bit, so I'm six foot two. So at the time, they wanted someone that was a bit more tall, just going to do like pushing and jumping and like, you know, breaking the nose and stuff like that. And And so... I ended up moving to seven because so my favorite position was was open side because seven is just basically a golden ticket to annihilate anybody in your path, right? Yeah, and so yeah. and so pretty much that was me. Like I'd never heavily get involved in, in the rocks and malls. I was literally like in the starting block waiting to annihilate a fly half or a scrum half. And kind of kind of I guess like in the modern game, it's like you your seven is like an inside center. So I was like, yeah, for me, inside center was quite boring. I tried that once and I was like, nah. So yeah, seven was my favorite position. And and what do you, you make of like the, you know, the professional era of the game, it's totally changed, right? And you're getting players now suing, you know, the is IRB and the English, the English Rugby Union and stuff. And and, and it's, it's kind of, uh, it's crazy just all the gym time and how physical it's become, right? But do you think it's kind of sour grapes in a way, or do you think it's no? It, I think it's, it's I think it's real, and that's it's and it's just this week that those stories came out about like you know you've got World Cup winners who can't remember the games that they played in the World Cup. Crazy, and, isn't it? And it's... these guys are younger than me, right? Mm. They're a few years younger than me, and that that terrifies me because I thought maybe maybe rock music did save me because like <laughs> if I look at the guys now, like you know the position that I played, like you know I wouldn't have a nose, I wouldn't have ears. I'd, I'd probably, I probably wouldn't you look be a at, professor. Look at Galileo, though. He's like a robot. Like he's, he's bionic, right? He's got so many pins through him and things, right? It's, it's kind of... Yeah, I mean, because you've got, like, the number eight, Vunipola, he's got, like, two plates. I remember seeing an interview on, on TV where he's got two metal plates in both forearms, mm. and he said that they hurt in the winter because it's cold. And when he finishes playing, he's going to have them removed. And that's when I was like, dude, I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad that I didn't want to turn pro because... Like, I just, that's not me. And then you look at, like, these other players, like, like you know, suffering dementia. And then there's some complete beast gym bodies, like Haskell, mm. who, like, you're just like, man, there's more to life. <laughs> like, so, I don't know, like, in my era, um, yeah, it's always easy to romanticize. But, but you know, I wasn't hitting the gym. I, let me talk about what I wasn't doing. I was not hitting the gym. Uh, like press ups, 
sit-ups like you know you kind of the, the body that god gave you is pretty much what you've got just just make it fit did you ever even have like were you even conscious of having a core like a stomach muscles and stuff i never when i was playing it was just i was a tubby guy i was a front rower and i didn't have a core as such and nothing well i used to i used to canoe a lot i used to like sea canoe okay and, and that developed my so, core yeah 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 because you're like yeah so that was really good for core but but a lot of it was more about skills like i was yes. i was always thinking about like you know it wasn't that I was going to outmuscle somebody. It was that there was something because because we didn't have that mindset. They were like you know, as you said, they were like big people, small people. Like everyone now is big, mm. everybody now is fast, everyone now is strong. And so and so, what you're seeing is this this era where people think, okay, the defenses are so well organized and tight that you've got to outmuscle the other person. So so like uh, if you're twenty stone and a number eight. That's probably going to get you a few more yards. Like it's it's like the physics, or you've got to be like you know doing the hundred meters in ten point five seconds or something like that. It's just it's not very good for the fans either, is it? Like the flair players, like the era of Welch rugby, where they're all, you know, Shane Williams, etc. They're just able to you know a bit more flair to it. It just it's kind of killed the game in that sense. That but the Southern Hemisphere are doing it because then, but and that's the thing where when when you look on the media and they were saying that they've migrated towards us, you know, we all could watch the the Southern Hemisphere season, hmm. and the All Blacks were phenomenal. Yeah, Argentina was phenomenal. Um, I mean, I loved that Argentina beat the All Blacks. Phenomenal, and, then, yeah, really and the yeah. response was like swift and robust, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. thirty-eight nil. <laughs> okay, well done. You did it once, but you can't do it again. And and even like you know when uh, the, the the battle between Australia and New Zealand, and just how like New Zealand just annihilated them because there was that moment where you thought, okay, yeah, New Zealand are unstoppable, and then mm. Argentina stopped them. And I think that the team to watch now. France, because even though they lost at the weekend, it was a second string team because their players couldn't play because of contractual reasons, because yes, they only play a certain number of games a month. But when you look at like the fact that the under 20s at France have won the World Cup twice in a row, events, yeah, yeah, that's gonna. I mean, so I'm getting excited about the, the, the prospect that if everyone stays healthy that and they don't break their bones, that like you know, you're gonna have you could have a World Cup with the French against the All Blacks. And then, and then Argentina on form as well, and then even you yeah. know, America's coming through, Canada's coming through, you know, Italy. It's it's quite it's it's growing, isn't it? It's developing, and you can have there's lots of positives in world rugby. You take for the sort of the yeah the the stuff that's happening in the English camp. It's happening the world over. Scot- but Scotland are brave. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a difficult one, Scotland, isn't it? You know, it's it's like we just sort of the uh, pool of players, the sort of. The, the, you know the pathway of people coming through well but... if they went down the diversity route like i said I, you know yeah. I, I didn't become the first black player to play for scotland but then like what was it like good 10 20 years later that that yeah. you had to, uh who i've forgotten the guy's name but he, he played at center and uh, then uh, i don't remember and then he broke his neck it's, it's like kind of a hollywood classic right it's like finally a black person gets to play for scotland and then he breaks his neck <laughs> the first black coach of Scotland. Get in there, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's. Uh, I was joking with someone else. There's Spike Lee in his movies talks about this phenomenon of the the magical Negro, who who helps out white people when things get really bad. So if you think about like like the Matrix and and yeah. Morpheus, or you think about um, Shawshank Redemption and Morgan Freeman. You can do a Google, do a Wikipedia on the magical Negro and it, and it will actually explain all of these movies. So literally, Scotland would have to get so much worse that they think, 
damn, let's just give the magical Negro a try because we, we need to, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then we can give it a shot. Because, I mean, that's the thing that I don't understand, which is that, like, you know, in terms of diversity, the Scots are all over the world. Mm. So why, when you look at the English team and, and the Welsh team and the Irish team, have they managed to find diversity? Yes. You know, some Southern Hemisphere players, there's got to be some, there's got to be, like, some dude somewhere, some lady somewhere... Who, who like got romantically involved and had beautiful babies like you know maybe <laughs> scotland needs to actively incentivize scottish people go and find the most athletic large <laughs> <laughs> what, what, age, what stage are your kids at though that's there's hope for the, the world yet right you've been breeding i, I got two <laughs> kids they're, they're like primary school age and got two daughters and so oh. they love rugby i don't know if they'd want to play because mm. um yeah, I don't know. I think as they're into martial arts. So like when I retired, I got into martial arts. But I, I don't know, like at the minute, they're, they're going through that phase where like, they're saying you used to like go out and, and roll in the mud mm. and get wet. <laughs> like, how is that fun? And as they get into their teens, it's just going to get worse, right? For that sort of stuff, I would think. But... Yeah, let's see. Like, you know, let's see. But um... I, a, nice, a nice segue into sort of, excuse the term, into different stuff like Legacy, the book by James Kerr on the All Blacks. So you must have read that in Culture, how critical that was to the All Blacks and statistically the most successful sports team in the world. So you're a culture and branding guy, right? You're, you've, yeah. got, you've got that in your profile. What do you, do you see like in the England camp and rugby do you, do you see culture being a critical thing, you know, in, in sports teams? And, and, and is it easy to, to replicate what the All Blacks did through, through being inspired by the book Legacy by James Kerr to say that any team can get that culture right and, and get the mindset right? And I don't know if any team can, because if you look, you know, New Zealand is unique in that, that this is their sport. This is what they really excel at. And, and everyone aspires and holds these players in esteem. And it's not you're going to make a lot of money. It's like, it really is an honor and putting on that jersey means something. And there are only a few million, there are less people in New Zealand than there are in London, mm, but okay. they're able to just time and time again produce. Now, what you're going to tell me that that's, oh, because biologically Maoris are strong or like, no, because like the All Blacks have got players who are not as big. Um, like we've gone to the new era of the All Blacks, but the skill level is so high that like the, the error count is lower. It's at speed, like that the, they're playing a different game. So why is it that the other countries can't? Now you might argue that, you know, in England, we have so many choices of sports or in the UK, do you want to be a footballer? Because, you know, if, if you were really athletically talented, why wouldn't you want to like play football and make, you know, several hundred K a week? Yeah, um, as opposed to rugby, where you're not what I mean. How much would a top player make? Probably, yeah, I don't know, a couple hundred k maybe at best. Would you say? I don't know, I don't know. For it's the year, bru right? it's brutal when like a third of players are, are carrying an injury at any one time. It's, you got a finite a window, haven't you? Until you, you know, in your thirties, your gubs, so you got to really have something to fall back on, and it's quite difficult to. Yeah, to I mean, like because like if I was going to do a sport, like if I was athletically able, then you'd be like, hey, let's. I'd love to be a basketballer. I'm not good enough. But yeah. like you think, wow, like, you know, the endorsement deals, the sneaker deals, like you'd be on serious money. And I think even similarly, like in the, in the Caribbean, like I think that they lost a lot of good players to baseball. Yes. Uh, from cricket. When cricket, you know, when you look at the professionalization of sport and people are making those, those choices, um, like, like why would you want to be a professional cricketer? 
unless you hate your your family, you know, you're away for a long time, and the game takes four days. Like, but it is very hard to to get to the top of sport, isn't it? You know, you know, statistically, just to get to the top of rugby. You know, you you tried, I tried. I wanted to play for Scotland when I was in my teens. Yeah, and it's like uh, it takes a hell of a lot of work, you know, and it's you know you probably got more chance of winning the lottery to some extent than to rising to the top of Man City or Man United or. Yeah, I mean, you think you think it's. I mean, the good thing about rugby is that you can be a late starter. Like football, like if you're not like you know five age five six and you're you're making videos and people are seeing them, you know, it's very it's very rare that people get picked up much later. So rugby, in some respects, like you can start later in your teens and Mm. and and you can make something happen. But you're right. I mean, I think at my stage, a lot of it was about networks who you knew. So I didn't have a Scottish network. I didn't have a, a way to say, hello, I'm Scottish. I want to be the first black Scot. If, if, if the right person heard that, I'd probably have got pulled into a training camp and then, and then you get to show your worth. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's similarly like, you know, if you go to certain schools and, and the reputations that they have, like there's very much a pedigree um, system that we've, that we've got. Um, and then it's luck, right? You've got to be lucky that you've got like, you know, you're not injured um, or you can play injured, or the coach sees something in you. But but yeah, there's a high degree of luck that when you look at it, that that becomes the challenge of being an athlete. There are so many athletes that I've seen that were amazing, and you think, oh wow, they're going to set the world alight, and and they don't necessarily make it. I mean, even like there was another one um, because in the out season I used to do athletics. Okay. Um, I wasn't particularly fast compared to an like an athletics, but I do like the four hundred meters and stuff and get you know, annihilated. So I remember as a teenager, like them saying, you're not fast enough at the hurdles or the 400 meters. Um, so you can train with the girls. <laughs> and I was like, I took it as such a diss, but upon reflection, that was a blessing. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? <laughs> I get to train with the girls. I have to run with them. Oh, man. Um, because one, because the guy in, in the club was Darren Campbell. Hmm, wow. Darren Campbell's running 100 meters at 10.3 when he's wow. like 15 years old. It's like he's always winning the race and he's always getting like the free pair of running spikes by some sponsor. And then we see that, you know, I mean, he, he went on to get an Olympic gold. And were you, were you hell bent on being a sportsman when you were really young? You obviously had a talent for. for, for nah, it. I was never. Um, I think it was, an, it was a fantasy. Hmm. I didn't set out to do it because. Um, I think my parents were always impressing on me the importance of, of academic study. So it was like, it was, it was almost like it was that great thing to put on your CV to get a place at university. So say, oh, I played rugby for England schools. Great, they'll get me, that'll get me into university rather than that will get me a career. And, and did your family, were they academics themselves or is it very much they wanted you to have that start in life when they didn't? Or did they? So my family worked for the NHS. My mom was a nurse and my, oh. and my dad worked in pathology. And my um, on my dad's side, because because my mom's family were in the Caribbean, so I haven't had much to do with them in terms of socialization. But uh, my dad's parents, um, my granddad was a chief physician, and and uh, my gran was also a doctor. But I think a lot of inspiration I get from my gran because um, like I never saw my granddad, but my gran was a powerful woman mm. in the sense that you know you got to think that she she grew up on a farm so this this is also interesting because now in 2020 when people talk about kind of diversity and and not understanding stories i think sometimes like if you didn't if i didn't tell you that my gran was white 
then it, then you would think, wow, such an inspirational story, right? Because it, because it has parallels with other people, you know, beating adversity. But she was uh, she was brought up on a farm, so she's from a farming family, and she was much younger um, than her siblings because there'd been a, um, her parents had suffered a lot of child deaths. So oh, yeah. it was almost like a miracle that, that, that she was actually born. But and it's kind of that were, era, in some respect, you take it for granted that you can have kids now, right? And there's yeah, I mean, reality. this is it. That she was like, you know, there was a massive age gap, but her parents were old by that stage, and they passed away. And so she was brought up by her elder sister, and and so I remember these stories from uh, you know, and I and I knew my great auntie, right? And where she would drill into her that she shouldn't have too broad a Scottish accent because it would hold her back. So, mm. so even I can see the accent differences between them, right? And so my gran has a Scottish accent, but but she, I think she was the first in her family to go to university. And, and did she the sister, to, did the aunt stay on the farm and work on the farm or what was the... Um, so she actually married another farmer. So 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 yeah. then the, the kind of the, that, that whole farming dynasty it, yeah. it expanded, right? And so my gran went to uni and she studied medicine and, and she was sporty, um, but she didn't have any coaching. It was like, but she was always known to be as fast as the wind, like racing the racing wow. the dogs in the field and stuff. And so she ended up being a hurdler, uh, sprint hurdles. And she actually held the Scottish record for women for a number of decades. And wow. she, she competed. In, so I don't know if my uncles are, are kind of the, are embellishing, but I know for a fact that she competed in the World Student Games. And I think she got a bronze medal in the sprint hurdles. And she was set to go to the Olympics, but then World War II happened. Ah. And I hear, whether that's true or not, I don't know, that she was approached by Nazis because she had blue eyes and was very fast and, you know, and light-coloured hair, that she might be a good ambassador for, <laughs> for their propaganda, but she said no. But, but you know, life carries on, right? That she, you know, she got married, had five sons, mm. and, and, you know, and also that meant putting her career on pause because in those days... You know that that was kind of the choice. So my grandfather was a chief physician. My my grand put a career on pause while she reared these five boys. And then when they're all adults, and and sadly her husband passed away, she went yeah. back to practicing medicine. So it was also amazing that she'd she kept up to speed with the developments in the medical field. So she would always read the British Medical Journal, and it it, it wasn't like she paused her career and didn't think about it. But she you know, even that and... alone, you know, now people just Google stuff is at your fingertips, but to 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 be on it with that sort of stuff and read journals, it's it's a lot harder. You have to make more of an effort to stay educated and informed than you do now. It's all at your fingertips, right? She was disciplined and she was so strict. Um, and and when I was younger, we didn't we knew that she loved us, but we, but we were kind of slightly afraid of her, right? But we loved her. But um, so like you know, when she moved away, like from Manchester and back to Scotland, and was like in Dumfries and Galloway, you got to think that in my in my school holidays, you know, I'm like in springtime, I'm picking up frozen cow pats from the local farmer's field to put on her, uh, her garden um, to, to like, you know, nourish the potatoes. So nice. she was growing everything. And, and, and for people that, that didn't want to use their gardens, she was growing stuff in their gardens too. So people had holiday houses. So like when we came in the school holidays, it's like great muscle go and dig the potatoes, get the onions. He grew potatoes, onions, carrots, broccoli, sprouts, strawberries, apples, all, all these different places. And so she never, she never bought vegetables. Mm. And if we bought fish, you could see where the salmon was caught. It was in that water just over there. And so, even the, the, that generation, they're very frugal with their money and using tea bags twice and all these types of things. All of that. My wife's Nana, my wife's Nana, she, uh, she used to, you know, 
boil vegetables than the water she would use for veg stock as opposed to just pour it down the sink. Of course. Like, I should put it in the fridge and drink it the next day. And and uh, I'm from farming stock myself. My, my parents are farmers and my brothers are all farmers. So it's like uh, people take it for granted how important food is and that that whole process of growing stuff and working the land and stuff, it's, it's taken for granted massively, I suppose. Yeah, because as a treat, like maybe twice a year, we'd eat out at a hotel. Mm-hmm. And if my grand ordered chicken, she would take the bones in a bag to oh. make stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that was that mentality. And so in some respects, I had like, I had like a, a kind of dual existence. So in the holidays, I'm, I'm in this completely different world where like I'm completely a minority. And But after a few years, people are like, oh yeah, oh, yeah that's that's you know that's dr wilson's grandson so like they they kind I'd of understood ask you about that because i like I'm, I'm from a very like white place angus is you know near dundee obviously yeah yeah i've got i've got some of my best friends in life is like uh an indian dude benoy who i met at university yemi worked in shell and aberdeen with he's from nigeria originally and like people like really international kids that have kind of moved to scotland later in life but what was it like being a kid, you know, you know, mixed race kid in Scotland? Did you feel like ever like any form of racism or do you feel? I've like got loads, like- got loads. I mean, that's the, and when you're younger, I think you're less equipped to being able to deal with it. So it was a culture shock because I grew up in Manchester and, and that was also the difference between Manchester and say like going. So I associated Scotland with like countryside and farms and stuff because that's where I see my gran. And Manchester was like, you know, I lived in inner city Manchester in a rough area. Like, yeah. you know, um, if you like have heard of Mosside and Wally Range, that area where there were riots in 1981, where there was a lot of gun violence and gangs and stuff. It was it was a difficult time in the 80s. And so um, I didn't have any freedom because my parents would basically keep us locked up because, you know, something could happen to you. Um, so but I didn't experience racism um, I, I think I experienced discrimination and 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 I think and so there were these different kind of layers primary school no I didn't experience anything per se in Manchester would be about you know if a kid a class full of 30 kids to so maybe be like um, you know 10 or so people of, of different creed and color I guess is that fair to say or like a- uh, it depends what school you went to. So the thing was, I went to a grammar school. So had I gone to the local school in the hood, yes. Mm-hmm. But my chances of success would have been drastically diminished because in, in those schools, they even limited what exams you could sit. So mm-hmm. I think the maximum, like for like GCSEs, I think at the time it was like the maximum grade you could get is C. They wouldn't put you forward for the, for the top papers. So I went to a grammar school. I passed an entrance exam. And so what that meant was I was then in a school where out of like 1,500 schoolboys, you could count the number of black kids on one hand. I think when I joined, there was maybe two. There were two other black kids. Hmm. And then my brother joined later and then a few others. But when I joined, there were two other black kids. It was like two out of 1,500. So you you come over and says you've got such a a nice confidence here. You're gregarious and energetic and confident. (laughs) It's a nice, nice way of being. But when you were younger, were you that way? Or are you quite like shy and introverted because of the the sort of the, not intimidation, but the, the sense of, I don't know, being being one of the minority, if that makes sense. Um, mixture. So so the thing was that um, actually at primary school, I would say that the, 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 the racism or discrimination that I would have suffered was more actually from classmates who were either African or South Asian because I was mixed. And that, uh, that at the time was curious. 
Yes. Uh, so it's like you're not fully black and you're not Asian. Um, so so you uh, uh, and that I didn't understand. So you kind of you, you did feel like you were a minority at secondary school. It wasn't that. It was like you know discrimination. But you know like you were. I was now considered a black person, mm. right? Um, but and, even, and I think that alone, like kids when they're very young, like my kids are not racist in any way. You know they they don't see a difference between people's skin color or their. You know, they're just interested, but that kind of bred into people, that sort of nasty. Yeah, yeah. At nursery, they don't, right? But when they go to school, something happens where kids kids um, listen to their parents. So mm-hmm. you've got to think about when, when there are those playground scuffles, if there was like, if you're a white kid and let's say uh, he's playing football and, and Mohammed, right, uh, is a bit rash with a tackle and your kid's got a graze on the knee and they come home and they say like, oh, like Mohammed tackle. Mohammed, where's Mohammed from? Oh, like, you know, oh, these people are so aggressive. Like, you know, that's what happens quite quickly. And then kids adopt, you know, not, not fully, but, but, but then that's what kind of opens the floodgates. So a secondary school, I mean, there was more of that. I mean, I think that also what happens is when you're younger, um, all babies are cute. Right. Yeah. So, so there was very much the, the phenomenon of you have cute little brown boy with a little afro. They, he's kind of cute. But, but then when cute little brown boy becomes six foot two <laughs> and he's a steaming rugby player and he's knocking on the door asking to date your daughter, <laughs> he's not cute anymore. He's, and he's taller than you. Like the, the, the look of fear in a father's face. And he's like, oh my God, why did my daughter, like, like of all the people, why him? Uh, but it was it was strange because there were different layers because even though I'm saying that uh, still I was protected because when I went to grammar school they know that you you must be of a, a of a decent family or you you have intellect so you you're kind of in a bubble where everyone is thinking a certain way but but when you go into the outside world so so for example when I joined the athletics club you know I thought like I'm back to square one again because like there are there are lots of kids that are like oh you went to a grammar school so you're a posh kid no I'm not a posh kid but like oh you think you're brainy do you and and then you realize that actually even if you think about music how music is very much linked to your social group so I was listening to Guns N' Roses <laughs> and Lenny Kravitz and and stuff like that and and to me, well, well, like, you know, Slash is mixed. Lenny Kravitz is mixed. I'm listening to, like, you know, rock music and uh, Jimi Hendrix. And to them, that's like, you're a coconut. That's what you listen to white man's music for. Why aren't you listening to, like, you know, proper dub, reggae, roots, calypso? I'm like, I do, but I don't like it as much as, like, this. And they're like, you know. So that was, that was strange going to, like, a local athletics club and experiencing that. But then you go to Scotland and it's taken to another level where it's, I wouldn't say it's worse well, in some respects, it's worse, but it's different because yeah. they've had less exposure. So you could you could argue that there's kind of that there's like ill-intended racism and and kind of ignorant like but but well-intended racism. So it's just so, ignorance, and you're making silly comments like you know where you're from, you no, know, like where you're really from, that sort of stupid stuff. Yeah, there's that stuff. Unsubtle, unsubtle, type. unsubtle. But then there's also like people might like point and say, ha, 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 look at your hair in the street, that type of stuff. Like because I think that when my, on my musical journey, I started listening to a lot of hip hop, and I think maybe partly being in Dundee contributed to that because I wanted to like I needed like some kind of some cultural immersion where where I was gonna win where like you know it was it was kind of it was talking to me about about that type of situation but but then 
that's the thing. You still get some people that, that if you if you break it down, they're making fun of you because of because your hair's like not straight, or then you've got. So yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of an emotional minefield. Or you've got some people who you think, yeah, you're nice, but then do you want to be the friend? Do you want to be the token black friend? Hmm. Uh, and, and there's no right answer, right? Because because then there are some people where actually it's like you're exotic. And I think one of the problems that I've had is I at that age, I didn't appreciate being exotic. I just wanted to be myself. Hmm. So like for the listeners out there or something, who knows, right? And, and there'll be differences of opinion. How would you feel if somebody wanted to date you just because they've never had someone like you before? It's a bit like, yeah, tick, tick list type behavior type thing, you know, let's get... Yeah, but then off. some people would say, dude, what's your problem? How good looking are they? <laughs> like, what's in it for you? But I think that, like, I sometimes, my 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 fault was I over-intellectualized because, because then, and, and, that, and that's just not about being a, a certain race or something because, because you know, women ex- experience the same thing. You know, it's that objectification. And, and so I wasn't very comfortable with being objectified, whether that's, you know, um, oh, wow, be careful of the black guy in the rugby field. He's going to be like really fast or, or like, oh, I want to date a black guy because I bet that he's really good at dancing and they're so musical or like all those sorts of things. I wasn't very comfortable at kind of um, dealing with them. But I think that as I've got older, I've learned to find my own position in space yeah. and to be less bothered by it. So, mm. so then, so then you can like, oh no, no, okay, like you know, I get it. You're you're a bit ignorant, but you're you're a nice person, or that was a mistake. I can forgive you, or or even actually, you know, to be honest, like yes, I've probably been invited to some conferences because I look different than other people. And if you've got a poster of speakers, do you always want people looking the same? Wow, it's a guy with an afro. I wonder what he's got to say. Okay, as long as you're paying me more money than them or like the same money i'm i'm good <laughs> like did it, did it drive you towards being the, the brand expert that you are and and, and specializing in that you know that standing out and 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 you know being yourself being different and and that uh i think that, I, I wanted to understand identity and image and and what goes into those things and and it's because in business I understood that people charge a premium for that. So I want to know why do people pay more for those things and what goes into those? Like, what does culture mean? What does cool mean? You know, um, like, what is it that makes certain people so attractive or certain companies or, or things so memorable and others not? Did you, my favorite book that I've read recently on that sort of stuff is the one by Sachi and Sachi called Life, Love Marks. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how a brand resonates with you and how you just love it. Like the Apple, yeah. the Dell, that cult following type thing that's generated yeah. through, through the, the emotion of love. You know, it's like, it's quite powerful. But you're, it's, uh, I don't know, I just find it, I just find all that interesting stuff. But how did you, did you come to brand later in life? Or was that, that kind of the bulk of your your degrees and your studies and things? Been? So basically I did, um, my first degree was chemistry and life sciences mm-hmm. at Dundee. And then I did uh, an MBA afterwards because as a science grad, I knew that I didn't want to talk to test tubes. So I thought, what am I going to do? And then and then I remember my dad like sending me like a, a clipping in the post saying MBAs are the next thing. I was like, okay, let me do one of those then. Like, but I'd never studied business before, but I, I'd looked at, I always thought business looked interesting, 
Um, and, and so in between that, I did some work experience um, to try and like, you know, just understand more about kind of working. And, and some of that actually was um, training to be uh, a journalist. Like I did a, a radio journalism course. I won some, I was good in Dundee at winning competitions, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, what you don't know is, I remember I, I, I won best dance act in Dundee and got to compete in the final to find Scot Scotland's best dance act, which is like scandalous. <laughs> you could literally, like in Dundee, you could phone up local radio when they got a competition for any tickets or stuff. There's like so few people that like, do, 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 get through. This is the answer. You've just won. Yeah. So I won another competition, which was free training to become a radio journalist and going to Edinburgh. So I represented Dundee again. Journalism's <laughs> massive for in Dundee, isn't it? Because of DC Thompson and, and yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there, jamming so, journalism. But. Yes, I represented Dundee. And it was like I went to Edinburgh, these people from Glasgow, Aberdeen and places. And and so there was the Edinburgh Science Festival. And I had to cover the science festival. So I did some um, recordings, interviewed some people, learned how to edit the thing together. And and for those of you that don't know, back in the days, um, editing meant using reel-to-reel -reel tape. So we were like recording on like tapes, transferring it to reel to reel tapes and, and editing meant getting a razor blade and cutting the tape and, and sticking it together in the right places. And, 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 and that was your finished thing that you then transferred into a final copy onto a final tape. So I did some, some of that and, and some of my um, reports got broadcasted on Scottish radio and, and local radio. So that was cool. But then I went and did an MBA and that opened up my mind to just kind of the different aspects of business. And then I landed my first job in 98 in London, uh, working in advertising. And literally it was like, I'd apply for- the back of your MBA or you started applying to jobs everywhere after I that? applied to any job that would move, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it was just literally like, and some of them were disastrous. <laughs> I could say like, like, you know, anything that moves like some of them was like suddenly it's like you're going to do a psychometric test they're like what's a psychometric test like because the internet wouldn't tell you back then it's like damn what is this and it's like <laughs> you see everyone else like just going through it it was like oh i just failed that one or then there was the interview where remember there was one bank and i, I traveled all the way like you know, jump on the train in scotland and it was like their, their jaws dropped when they saw that i was jonathan wilson and um <laughs> you were expected to be the token scotsman yeah ginger yeah. Thought, i thought you were scottish i know it was like the interview lasted 15 minutes and it was like sold it was like Mah. and then i thought let me give them the benefit that you phone them back and it's like i just want to know how we went on they never even told me that i was unsuccessful it was like it was that disastrous and you got to bear in mind as well that like after my mba i buzzed off my afro i got like my best kind of will smith clean cut look nice suit i was like, like i really want to get a job I, I had no luck in Scotland. And so what happened was I got a call from London and, the, and, and they said, do you want to work in advertising? And I was like, I'd never thought about it, but I'm now thinking about it. I'd really like to. And then I moved to London and that's how I started my career in advertising sales and sponsorship. And then I ended up going into planning and buying on client side. And then uh, after about seven years, I was done. I needed a career change because I thought that, I, I think the thing, no offense to advertising people, by the way. <laughs> Actually, maybe there's a little bit of offense, but um, it was tricky because there weren't discussions about diversity, and it was a and and so a lot of advertising at the time was really about about um, forging relationships and negotiating hard and socialising and stuff like that. 
And I could do that, but then I wasn't really feeling that I was intellectually challenged. I thought that like, I'm not really using my brain here. It's, it's really about how, how entertaining and charming I am and, and whether I, I keep chasing you and phoning you back and mm. twisting your arm. And whilst the other thing that I, I didn't kind of say was that whilst I was working in advertising, I was running a parallel career being a professional musician. So that, oh. was, really, that was really my passion. So I'd use my annual leave and then go and go and tour. And, and so I got to play in places like Poland, Serbia. I played oh. in Glastonbury played on the BBC. I was doing all this stuff. And this was almost like a, a secret life because it's before YouTube. So I remember there's one time I had a gig in Paris and it's like, I took my leave and I, I had like a kind of like short hair, but I bleached it blonde, put like a little blue streak in it, went on tour, like, you know, bugged out, buzzed it off, went back to work on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it was like back to normal again because you can't go to work with the blonde hair. You're in, you're in a little band or you kind of... No, I was in a band, so I did I did some DJing, but I played bass, and so I was in a, a couple of bands um, that were touring at the time, and they did kind of like uh, Asian underground music. It was a mixture between like drum and bass and punk and and kind of uh, South Asian. So we had like tabla players, doll players, um, yeah, kind of funky stuff. Um, so we got to go to some some exotic locations, and mm-hmm. uh, but then um, yeah, I wanted a career change, so so I kind of. A lot of things happen at the same time, but 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 pretty much I retired from being a musician and, and I didn't want to do advertising anymore. And then by kind of chance, um, I got invited to like, because I was again applying for tons of jobs, like because it was, I think, you know, that's my advice. Just, just let them decide, right? But I was literally applying, even to the extent where I remember applying for one job, which, which didn't exist, where I, I looked at the textbooks on my wall and, and I was like, who's this published by? And I wrote a letter saying, I've read a lot of your textbooks and it was really good and I'd like to return the favour. And I got shortlisted. Mm. And the guy who's interviewing me said like, so why did you apply for this job? I said, no, you asked me to come. He goes, how did that work? I said, because I wrote you a letter saying that I, I love your textbooks. He's like, oh, interesting. And, and again, that's doing something slightly different to stand out from the crowd, right? Just to get people's attention. Because yeah, but then I, I guess I didn't think... I didn't, I, I think the thing that people might not realize is I didn't consciously think that I want to be different. Mm. I just wanted to be free and, and, I, and I try and protect being free. So whether that's applying for jobs that don't exist or when I was in Dundee, like, I don't know, if you're into grunge music, I, I wrote a letter to Alice in Chains. Yeah, I don't know. Ah, there you go. Okay. Like, you know, they're still around. But like, I remember like in my first year reading like the enemy and it said that their bass players quit. And I thought, man, I want to play for Alice in Chains. And all of my mates thought, you're an idiot. Like, why would they want you? And in my head, I was like, but I can play their songs. I can play bass. And then I knew that they were playing in Glasgow Barrowlands. So I got the one passport photograph I had after matriculating at uni and put it in a letter and said, I'm going to be at your concert in the front row. And I want to interview, I want to audition for your band because I can play your songs and I love Alice in Chains. Stamp on the envelope, post it to Glasgow Barrowlands fight to the way to start like standing room only in the mosh pit wait for Alice in Chains to come on stage and the first thing they do is look around see me point and wave and I was like that is cool and everyone's like what the hell are they waving at this black guy for and I didn't get an audition but I guess what it then said to me is you know what you can do stuff not yes. that I'm particularly talented but let other people decide 
let other people deselect you or, or fire you or something, but you just try and do what you want to do. And, and so if there's a common thread between what I'm saying, whether that's rugby or music or education or school or living, I've always tried to protect kind of, I guess, myself to try and be, to be my authentic, honest, free self. Um, but, you know, to package it in the right way or, or to be mindful of other people, but, but let other people decide. And if they decide against, then just carry on, pick yourself up. You get tackled, you get up and you run again. They tackle you again, you run again, look for the gap. And so like with education, it was like that where, you know, uh, I applied for a job and they said, do you want to be a, like a, a visiting lecturer, like five hours a week? I did it and I thought, this is fun. Huh, I can do does this. It feel, does it feel quite purposeful, if you like? Is there any stage in your life where you're, like you always, you're, I guess when you're young, you're having a lot of fun, you're doing things you're good at. Yeah. Does it get to a point in your life where you're trying to find, you know, it's quite trendy, the Simon Sinek stuff of, you know, start with why and everything. Was there any point in your life where you felt I needed a purpose of educating people or, you know, that that sense mm. of, you know, it's you know, fine when you're a lecturer, right? To to help people and to educate people. Or yeah, I, I guess people might be surprised because they might think, "Oh, look at your like, you know, your big personality and your big hair and stuff like that." But actually, I'm actually a pretty little guy with with little expectations. I, I I'm mindful of my skills and talent, and I won't sell myself short. I, I reckon I'm worth lots of money, and I reckon that I'm really good at what I do. However, the way that I look at things is like, you know when I die, what do I want to have achieved or be remembered for? Mm. And, and, and my, my aspirations are, are quite small. I would love to think that more people than not have fond memories of me. Think He was a, he was a good guy. It's crazy you know? when you look at your profile, you just linked in again, but your references, you know, 127 people have said something nice. And it's actually... It, it takes work to get references, right? And and I guess a yeah. lot of people volunteered to do that. And that's pretty phenomenal to say that there's 127 people in the world think <laughs> that highly world. of you. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think that people think, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Or I, I, I chose academia because I felt I can leave my fingerprints on this planet. So if it was like, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered for like scoring a match winning try? That's cool. That's really cool. Um, but if there was a choice of like having contributed towards theory or made people think differently about identity or race or image or branding, that's more cool to me. Mm. And then similarly, like, do you want to write a song that everyone sings that racism is bad? Or do you want to like, ah, um, now that I've tasted both, I don't know, because like you listen to John Lennon and some of his songs and you're like, wow, that's powerful stuff. Right. Um, but I think that you know, I'm also mindful that maybe yeah, I'm a good musician, but I don't think I, I don't think I'm naturally as talented as when I see John Lennon or Paul Weller or Jimi Hendrix. I'm not in that division or David Bowie. Maybe I'm selling myself short. I know I have to practice more, but mm. I think that within the academic circle, in this kind of this overlap of, I don't think I'm the smartest academic, but in having had enough exposure and experience and caring enough about some of these issues, when you stitch them together and actually do the maths and think, is it important or significant? I think that that puts me into a fairly small category. So when I die, I'd like to think that I'd made that contribution, but I think that the bigger contribution is gonna be that I was there at the right time for people to pull them through education, to get a qualification that then meant that they went on to do powerful things. They got the job 
that pays them a gazillion times more. And they're the people on Forbes uh, front cover. It's not yeah. going to be me. It's going to be them. And I could at least say, yeah, yeah, I was, I was part of that journey. And even better, rather than being that grumpy old professor that says, oh, yeah, yeah I knew them, is, is the fact that I'm one of those professors that when that person is on Forbes, they go, hey, John. <laughs> Thank you for not failing me. Because then people know that, like, you know, that that thought that you had that you'd made a significant contribution in someone's life, it's real and it's verified. And I guess that's one of the things that maybe you picked up on, on LinkedIn. It's it's that. So it's trying to close that gap. So yeah. When did you have that realization? Do you think that's quite you know, you put some thought into that? Obviously, it's never came, it didn't come in your early twenties that you wanted to build that legacy. It's is that is that fair to say? Like um, I thought that I had to work smarter. So like as a musician, I thought, you know, you're only going to have the spotlight for a couple of years and people that have a career out of it end up being producers or something. You need to like, because, you know, there's very few people that can go on forever, you know, like Mick Jagger or Steve Tyler or Iggy Pop or whatever it is. Most people's bodies go to pot. They're not sexy anymore. Like, so get behind the, the mixing desk. So, so in music, I was always thinking, get behind the mixing desk. And I think like in business and academia, I kind of have that same view, which is I'm going to benefit more from, from kind of the people that I bring forward. And, and it's that multiplier effect. So even, um, you know, so, so the, the thing that I always say to my students is some of you in like 10 years time are going to hire me to do the jobs that you no longer want to do. Hmm. And some of them do. You saw so it's inception, so you saw the seeds, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, of course it is. Genius. But it, but it is that. It's like the fact that, like, you know, I have been booked to speak at conferences organized by former students, mm. or former students have actors booking agents for me to speak at conferences, and they were able to negotiate much higher purses than me, mm. <laughs> which is cool. So then it means that there's, like, there's not a deterioration of knowledge. It's like the fact that, you know, you teach them and they're better than you. And and really that's that's the role of a great coach, right? We, we look at some of the greats, it's like, you know, whether that's Alex Ferguson, you say Jose Mourinho or any of these people, it's the fact that they, they bring through amazing talent. And again, did you have that realization like in your thirties and your, you know, is it kind of something that's a fairly recent thing or is that, it's a um, smart move, obviously. You're, it's working well for you. I think it's just like, I've always been good at reading the audience and reading kind of what's going on. Hmm. And it, and so often I respond to what I see around me, sometimes short term and sometimes very long term. If I see an opportunity, I'll go for it. But then also I think, what what is the, the bigger picture? And so I guess it's it's listening to people when people say, oh, you're really good at mentoring or, you know, and, or, you know, and, and just, just absorbing that feedback and then thinking, actually, you know, maybe maybe this and looking at other people who I admire hmm. I'm thinking what is it that I admire about that person and then you see those traits and then you try and be like that um so I think that the more that you know about yourself and what you want to do you can be more tactical but in the early stages I think that I'm very conscious of just trying to appreciate the journey but in appreciating the journey thinking what is it that I actually like so being a professor it's fun in the way that I have it um, because actually what I liked about being a musician was going on tour, mm. but, and, and, and playing in different countries and someone else paying for me to go to different countries and, and that fun of being in an exotic location, eating food that they're paying for and just kind of, mm -hmm. you know, wilding out. The downside is, Oh, there's so many people that are drunk and high 
and, mm. and, and, and could just ruin it for you. Or it, it's just, it's just a bad vibe. Right. Um, so in academia, it's great. People aren't drunk and high. And I've managed to kind of maneuver myself in a situation where I'm, I'm getting to travel uh, for free and other people are buying me food. So that's the parallel. It's like, okay, so I, I can't do this as a musician forever. And it's not as much fun for 40 minutes of fun on stage. It's four days worth of hell. So how could I find an alternative? And, and I think some of that then becomes it's down to the ego because being a professor is not, I get it. It's not particularly sexy. It's did not you like, hard, did you have it in your mind? Do you want to be a professor for some time? Or is that a kind of a, you kind of just came naturally through doing a PhD and. I don't think I did. Once I wanted to become an academic full-time and I thought I'm going to do this. Then it was like, look, I have to, I have to get to the top. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to be a lecturer all my life. There was that competitive element, which is like, if I get to professor, then I'm good. Hmm. Um, what oh, I do now, professor. So you have your PhD, I guess, and then a specialist. I've got, I've got two doctorates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I got another. Yeah, I got two doctorates. Um, so like, yeah, I went up from being a lecturer to senior lecturer to like, you know, program director, associate professor, and then full professor. Um, which that's you grind. Know, like, that's hard work to get there, though. It's not as if you. Yeah, it's grind, and a lot of people like um, are unsuccessful, sadly, and and even like with your application, like you know, like. To let people know, like an academic CV is full disclosure of everything that you write and where you've been. And so, you know, my CV is 30 pages long, my academic CV. I've read I've read CVs of professors that are 50 pages long. I had to review somebody's CV for promotion that was 170 pages long. So you're submitting this CV, these publications, and they require five references from you of professors in your field who are still active. So that you then have to have unanimous decision from five professors in your field to say, yeah, he's worthy of it. And before you can show all that stuff, the university has to like you enough to allow you to apply. So it is fraught with, with difficulties. And so I'm grateful that I kind of got through that, those. And But did I always want to be a professor? I don't think so. But then upon reflection and hindsight is a great thing. Um, I loved Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and when I saw that dude in the classroom teaching, and then it's like, gotta go now, gotta go, like save the world or find something. As a kid, I saw that as being amazing, and I think, yeah, I think Indiana John, I think it, that did incept me. I, I do feel <laughs> like that that he's like kind of in some respects my role model, that kind of Indiana Jones thing. So that's also why I might research things that allow me to go to to different locations. So I do positively think look like i've just finished writing a paper um looking at, at consumer behavior and in, in advertising in egypt and it's like because i want to go to egypt more hmm. you know i've written stuff on iran i've gone to iran indonesia i work with the indonesian government on tourism a tourism wow. project so like who wouldn't want to go to indonesia you want to hmm. like sit on a beach hot country i mean like, yeah yeah if you don't then write about like Dundee. you know yeah yeah, no, the, the priest and Galloway, like, you know, like, you know, uh, an, an investigation into the kind of, you know, uh, holiday makers in Rockcliffe. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. You're listening to Mostly Talk. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Now back to it. But Dundee's got something about it now, though. He's got the V&A. Yeah, have you been yet? It's, it's quite... Yeah, it's I went quite... last year. I went last year. So... I was surprised. It's like, whoa, 
of all the cities, come on. It's Dundee. Immense, it's immense. It's a about the council building they put in front of it, right? Did you see yeah. that big, ugly building? But kind of, uh, it's an impressive structure all the same, right? It's cool. It's like, if you haven't been anywhere, come, the DNA in Dundee is beautiful. And it was just immense. the fact that like, like, you know, I was showing my family because, you know, they were like, wow. So this is, okay, this is where I said, look, back in the days it was Dumpty, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, like, that was, that was the slang. And also I lived in a part where, like, I mean, what's also unique about Dundee is your two football clubs, Dundee and Dundee United, are within about 100 metres of each other. Yeah. So I lived in that area. And that's why I, I kind of am mindful of, like, football hooliganism and stuff and, and keeping my head down at certain time, certain games because I, I don't want to get, like, beaten up or something. I'm in Glasgow, right? I'm a country bumpkin living in Glasgow. So I was told when I came to Glasgow, never talk about football, religion, or politics. And that's what... I was told in the first Yeah, time. I mean, this is it. Like, like when I was in Dundee and I was going through my hip-hop phase, I'd like one of my mates bought me an orange jacket from New York. And I thought, oh, I, I'm the dopest fly OG hustler. You know, <laughs> had, had like my orange jacket on, all hip-hop. And then some dude saw me, he goes, oh, mate, what the legend are you? I was like, what? He goes, you support Dundee? Oh, you're a United fan? I was like, what? I was like, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. Man, I'm, I'm into hip-hop. It was like, but that orange jacket got me grief mm. because they thought it was like, you know, some religious affiliation. And I, I had no idea, but like, and that's the other thing that for those of you that aren't acquainted with Scotland, look into religion and football. Oh, crazy, and yeah. It's crazy. I mean, like, obviously Rangers and Celtic, but then if you like trace it back to like even the English football clubs and Everton and Liverpool, Catholic, and and like you know, Protestant, and Manchester United, and Manchester City, and they don't talk about it. But but there are those roots because then when you trace it, it's like if you're a United fan and you want to support a Glasgow team, you've got to support Celtic because yes, they're both Catholic. Hmm. And then you see the whole, and then you think, ah, the blue color thing, right? City, Rangers, Everton, like you know, um, you can you can see what was going on, and and so yeah, Scotland was fascinating like that. It is, uh, it is good, and that's one of the other good reasons to like rugby when you're in Scotland. You can kind of sit on the fence and a lot of those things, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, and also, like, I mean, if you look at, like, I mean, the Irish rugby team is a prime example. Like, like you don't see that division. Yes. There's an Irish rugby team, hmm. but, the, but, but there are two football teams. Yes. And so, yeah, Dundee was like a, was like a fascinating place, like, to see the V&A there and then to show my family and then just... To think that we we flew from London and you go to Dundee Airport and it's like oh, a it's five mi- it's like a five minute taxi ride to your hotel and then the hotel is on top of the train station and across the road is the VNA. It's literally like you can touch everything in Dundee and and it's like wow this is such a great city break because but then after like a day it's like okay so what else is there it was like well <laughs> sunsets early <laughs> how do you see how do you see like london life you know you know the whole there's all obviously loads of discussion around working from home and will offices return when the vaccines rolled out and things to you know keeping overheads down reducing office sizes do you yeah. think there is do you notice a lot of people thinking about leaving london or has it still got a vibe to it that will um well, i mean i've lived in london a long time now and i would say I mean, I saw some YouTube video on Lenny Kravitz, right, on his farm in Brazil, and the dude's growing his own food. I mean, you can see the parallels, right? Guitar player, like, you know, farms and stuff like that. I was like, 
man imagine that like you're in your own farm growing your own stuff just away Grand from everyone proud. your grand would be so proud she would be and, and i kind of thought i could almost do the lenny kravitz thing if i had the money of course right um now that we're working from home because as long as you've got ethernet good broadband mm. you're sorted so i, I kind of like to just work from home and I, was, I was even saying to a mate it's like imagine like you know have like a Lenny Kravitz style university where like students come to your farm and they study, like forget all this big campus stuff. Like, you know, people come and just get back to nature and, but you've still got the internet. I mean, if that future was around the corner and you are building a farm university, hire me. Right. But <laughs> I think, um, I guess we're all uncertain about whether we're all going to have to go back to work. Mm. I'd like to think that there's more work working from home because as a parent doing school runs, like it's just much more convenient. And and actually some things at work are a distraction. Meetings now finish on time. People yeah. can't talk over each other. Um, you know, we're a lot more efficient, but on the downside, Microsoft Teams is like pinging 24 seven because anyone can now access your phone. I mean, upside, you can phone somebody and it goes to their phone. Downside, it goes to their phone. Have you, right? have you found it hard to, to switch off even when you're with the family, you're in your... You're in your um, office and then do you just leave your phone at your desk and kind of are you good with that sort of stuff? I work in bursts. So mm. so actually I made this switch. Yeah, I mean, like where I am now, this this thing here that you see, like it's not it's not like one of those zoom wallpapers. This is I don't like them. Like, I don't, I really don't like them. They seem dishonest. And half of your head your head disappears when you like move because they don't they <laughs> yeah. don't know it's your head. But this is my office at home. And and so um built this just over 10 years ago. I, I didn't build it. I bought like, it's so it's a garden office. So basically, it takes like one. It took like one and a half days to put up. It's like one day to put up, half a day to connect the electricity into your house. And so I'd already reached that kind of mindset, which is my most productive work, writing and thinking and stuff. I have to do away from work. I need isolation and solitude, just like musicians do. Musicians don't just like socialize in communal like rehearsal areas. They songwrite in isolation. And so mm. there's part of me that never understood work, which is like, if you just leave me alone, I can work more productively. So I'm actually kind of split in terms of personality. Sometimes I'm really sociable. I love to talk. And other times I don't because I just want to not talk to anyone and think for myself. So I basically like over 10 years ago, put all of my books at home so that I don't have to go to work to work. I actually prefer to go to home. And, and it's just that, that uh, challenge of trying to convince your boss just to let you go and, 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 and proving to them that's the case. So working from home for me was a dream. The only thing I had to do was drill Ethernet into this office, like drill holes into the walls of the house because I was using Wi-Fi, but for like live streaming, it's just not powerful enough. Yeah. Um, so I'm good at working from home and, and just that, that discipline of work and then you just walk into your house and quite often I might work late at night as well but but the on the upside it's that when your kids need you to hang out with them hmm. then you can so I guess that I've become quite disciplined at just knowing how to switch off and and some people aren't I know that some people right now just don't know how to switch off from work and it's stressful or they don't know how to watch a movie and work at the same time. But I've trained myself to be able to watch Kung Fu movies and work at the same time because that's what I did with my PhD. So actually, I was one of the kids who 
didn't like going into the library and chatting to other PhD students because they would stress me out and be talking about, oh, am I going to pass? Am I going to fail? And are you sure that's what you do? I thought, I don't want to talk to any dudes. I just want to read the stuff, think for myself. But that's boring if you're doing that for many hours a day. So it's not boring if you've got Kung Fu movies on at the same time. <laughs> you <laughs> down, download like a 40-episode series and then like you, you've just written another chapter. So I think that I kind of thought about this new reality and I think that more of us are going to work towards those patterns and and so I guess yeah being a musician it kind of helped me with that and do you think like the academics is quite an interesting one because you do get a buzz from being around people in a, a live audience and things and do you think there'll be a hybrid model for for lectures and things down the line or yeah there's got to be I mean yeah it's it's not as much fun lecturing online I mean if not for the fact that a lot of people just don't switch on their cameras or their mics. So so there isn't that interaction. You can't read the audience because you don't know if people are listening to you when they're going like... Can you boss them into it or do you, do you kind of, can you make some etiquette and rules for your lecture? Uh, hard to do. So what I've learned is that my, my kids who are at primary school level, you can tell them to switch on the cameras mm. and, and, and primary school kids are very good at, at behaving and performing in front of like, you know, an online education. Adults aren't... Hmm. you can't tell a student like they don't want to like you know they're in bed like i had one student that was like at the dentist and listening <laughs> it's like why like so why aren't you switching on your camera i'm in the dentist what so, okay prove it oh my god you are in the dentist yeah. what is wrong with you like because i wouldn't do that if i had to go to the dentist i wouldn't listen but but that's a different generation so so like i've got some students who are like in the dentist driving their car and and so so they've adapted and, and to me that's a little bit weird because i wouldn't be driving my car when it's lecture time but to them it's like in that generation and i guess that's the same thing as smartphones being able to do lots of different things so i think universities will have to evolve but but then it is going to require a different sort of academic because i like started vlogging a few years ago and stuff so i know how to do the camera stuff how to edit how to upload and there are lots of uh, colleagues that are struggling and 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 your delivery just like as a musician a live musician is different than a studio musician yeah. a, a lecture online through a webcam is different than in person you've got to be more dynamic you've got to be more entertaining there's got to be more humor because i was going to ask about that because you your, your linkedin thing four times top voice that's a really impressive thing right so everyone's there's kind of this wave of people using linkedin frantically in 2020 yeah. But you've been at that for a while, I guess. So have you always had that sort of mindset of putting yourself out there a bit with it? Uh, so what happened was like, there was the 2012 Olympics and I couldn't go on campus because I was at Greenwich at the time and they were using it. So I was kind of bored and I thought, yeah, let me just do that LinkedIn profile thing. And so I set one up in 2012. And then at first I was of that mindset where I'm only going to connect with people who I've met and shaken their hand you know, and, and we all share our contacts and everything. And then I kind of worked out that actually, if you want to have it as a, yeah, that, that works if you want to have like a kind of a, an active database of, of your contacts. But if you want to use it as a, a promotional tool to amplify your reputation, whatever it is, it can't work like that because you don't have enough numbers and followers and they're not diverse enough unless you can go out there and meet new people. So then what I realized is that actually... Um, and part of it is, is always kind of by accident or fluke, but I felt that like at the time, the university department, marketing departments, I didn't feel that they were getting behind me enough in promoting what it is that I was doing. 
Okay. So so whether that's that like you know I've been invited to speak uh, in America or Malaysia or something, I was like, this is great news. This could be really good. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So then what do I do? Not promote myself or find an alternative means. So for me, the alternative means was finding the platform and doing it myself. And so LinkedIn became that platform. And so there's this promotion. Like I, I'm Scottish, right? And and it's yeah. I've got people that just think I'm a nutter on LinkedIn because I go. Well, I'm kind of experimenting, trying new things, trying to put myself out there. I've started a yeah. company. So like a year ago, I wasn't doing much on LinkedIn. I may put the odd article up. But now I'm going out there. I'm trying to put videos out and stuff. And it's like, in some ways, you're like, you feel it's cringeworthy at first. And you're like, you know, and it's like, it's hard work. And you get a wee bit of critique from people. And, and some of it's a bit lousy. But ultimately, if you're not promoting yourself, then who is, right? And who's Correct. in terms of opening yourself up to the world and creating opportunities, the stuff you've achieved from it, I don't know, since you started doing that, it must have been phenomenal. You're speaking. Yeah, I've got a lot of uh, interesting invites. And I guess, and I suppose the thing is, you have to analyze what cringeworthy is. There's legitimate cringeworthiness and there's illegitimate cringeworthiness. <laughs> legitimate is like, yeah, some stuff is cringe and, you, and therefore don't do it. There's other stuff where it's just kind of your own. Um, fears and and you know like you know nervousness about like oh like because you're having to face some real truths because once you commit to speaking on video or audio you can hear your own voice and you can hear what everyone else hears or sees when you do live talks it's like you, you can convince yourself oh no no i was great but when when it's recorded and you see the mistakes that you make or when you stumble for your words or things like that then, then it's like, it feels horrible. And yeah. some people then don't know what to do. Some go, I need to improve and then work on improving. Others don't, they just become deflated. So, so it's kind of, it's a reality check. So you, you're going out there and you're putting yourself out there, but then what you're trying to do, if you want to avoid more cringeworthiness is, is migrating towards a situation where people are celebrating you rather than you having to celebrate yourself. Yes. Right. So, so, that then means that in going on that journey, what have you got to do? You've got to increase your fan base, right? It can't just be your mate. You can't just be texting your mate saying, please like my, my post. It looks pitiful You've, because you'll ruin your friendships. You've got to find new audiences, new people. And the best way to do that, and, and I mean like organically, legitimately, not like buying, buying a following, is you've got to care about other people and celebrate their successes. You hmm. give in order to receive. So that's why, like, yeah, I might have got quite a lot of LinkedIn recommendations, but I've also written a lot of LinkedIn recommendations too. Yes. So uh, I don't, you know, I'm not Lenny Kravitz, right? I can't just go out there and say, like, hey, everybody, just write me. Like, you know, I can't. I've got to work at that. I've got to work at that appreciation, right? I'm sure that there are, there are kind of supersonic rock stars who whatever they ask for, they will get. Mm. Right, but I'm at the stage when I have to put in the work. So putting in the work means liking other people's stuff, making pithy comments, like, you know, supporting other people. And before I went to that stage of my kind of LinkedIn development, it was watching what other people do mm. and thinking, what do I find cringeworthy? What do I like? What don't I like? And asking those questions like, oh, I like all the stuff that this guy posts. But then thinking, does he get any business off this? So some people are great sharers, but they don't actually um, build their brand. Yes. They will always be known of as being sharers. 
you know, free spirits giving stuff away for free, but then people don't want to pay for what it is that they have to offer. They, they just take, right? And, and this, this becomes the trick. You want to get into a situation where you're giving stuff, but, but at some stage, people realize that you are worth paying for. Otherwise, you can't sustain that activity. So it was watching people, how they share, looking at like whether commenting on a post that you share, like having a comment just rather than sharing the article uh, leads to more interest or builds your brand. And it does, but it requires more effort and work. And so it was studying people, looking at their profiles, looking at people's photographs, bios, and thinking like, okay, so how would I do mine or how would I do it better? And then just experimenting and practicing and when you get better, then you take more risks. You do more crazy things like, okay, if I pull like some ugly face in a picture, like, you know, and so that was the thing because after a while I'd scroll through feeds and everyone's got conference pictures where everyone is standing like this or like that. So it's like, what if I go, like, <laughs> what happens? What if I pull a gang pose? <laughs> then, then you you burst out of out of someone's phone. Like, what, the hell, what the hell is this guy doing on LinkedIn? And then if you don't get like excommunicated or shot down, it's like, holy crap, this people are like liking was this. That, was that epiphany like uh, like years ago, like five years ago, three years ago? When was it that? It was during the LinkedIn journey. And 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 I think that's what attracted like the first top voice. Like that just came out of the blue. When I got it, I got an email and I thought it was spam email. I thought it was someone trying to get money out of me. And then when I checked the name, I was like, oh my goodness, this is a real person from LinkedIn. They're really giving me an award. And then I thought, okay, it's just a flash in the pan. I'm not going to get it next year. And I always think I'm not going to get it again because someone else is going to just be better at doing what I do. They're going to be better looking more. They're going to care more. They're going to apply some kind of system because I'm still, to be honest, I post what I want when I want any time of the day. I don't apply any kind of metrics like using Hootsuite and stuff because yeah. I'm still experimenting because I know that if I post at a ridiculous time of the day in the UK, it, it's a good time in another time zone. So That's I can I build an well. audience. Like, some people like focus on their little town. It's yeah. like, forget that. Why don't you just build up a following anywhere in the world? And then when you put someone up at four in the morning, when you've woken up because your kid's crying in the night and you've managed to settle them, then yeah, you get that's, that's there's it. another dad somewhere else in Ochenshugel. Ah, Flynn shite, yeah. Yeah, oh, don't can you up at four in the morning? Are you in Ochenshugel as well? Oh, that's good. <laughs> like, no, but but then you've made a meaningful connection. Exactly. Like, yeah. You know, so that that's the cool bit. And do you are you wary of like? Have you ever like made any faux pas or offended people or like? Uh, you know, a lost people that you wish that you could have kept. You know, they say that you can only be liked by 20%. Do you believe that? Or are you going to um, universal recognition? <laughs> just put an emoji after everything and you can be forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> Smiley face. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> um, yeah, you always just like that blame blame sense of humor or something. Uh, I think that LinkedIn is still fairly safe, but that people that don't like you don't express that they don't like you. Yes. Um, in comparison to Twitter or Facebook or all these other places where... Are you like, good on them as well? Do you, are you kind of... I don't do Facebook. I've got a Facebook account, but like I never I never watch it. It's just there to claim the name. So from a branding perspective, all my handles are Dr. John Wilson, the yeah. website, Twitter, whatever, Instagram. So um, I don't really do Facebook. Uh, Twitter is a bit more intelligent. It's kind of a bit more... You can yeah, I mean, it. I was actually late to the party. So like, you know, kind of... I never really committed to social media until much, much later. Like, 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 
LinkedIn and then thinking, oh, I might as well do Twitter then because journalists are there. I wasn't one of these, you know, let's have a Facebook account. I was actually kind of anti-social media because I wanted to hide. Maybe that's because, you know, having like being a musician, being in bands and stuff, like I thought, okay, I want to keep my, my professional career uh, cleaner. And that means controlling your image. Controlling your image means just being off the radar, right? Mm. But then I realized that that wasn't going to help me build my reputation because if you said that you you're well recognized and then people do a Google and they can't find you or even worse, you do a Google and it's things that you didn't want people to find as in like all, all that they can see are pictures that someone else has take, taken. Then yeah. my advice is the best way to control your image is, is to give people enough information that they, that their bellies become full. Hmm. So, so like, you know, that's the other reason for writing articles and, and being active on LinkedIn because then you Google yourself or whatever. And then, and then you see all of this stuff. So yeah, I, I focus a lot on LinkedIn because it, it's the, the one that most directly um, translates into business and making money. Mm. Um, I haven't really made any mistakes, but I, there was somebody this year who, yeah, I, I think it was my first experience where he, I think I, I made some comment and it wasn't even an offensive comment. He's like, I have lost respect for you professor and i know that you were talking about me and i was like dude i didn't even think about you and and um that was kind of i find i I go out there with my sense of humor maybe too much and it's like uh that could be off-putting because sense humor is not universal you know and it's like maybe not everyone's having a good day when i am yeah but but for him it was it was actually you know i think the thing about 2020 has been i've been more open about discussing the nuances of kind of, you know, racial dynamics, Black Lives Matter, stuff like that. So it was in connection with just this idea that someone else that didn't agree with my perspective and he wanted to challenge me to a debate hmm. to see that, you know, and, and let's see who would win. <laughs> and I kind of was pretty dismissive. I was like, no, nah, I can't be bothered. <laughs> Doesn't sound fun. He's like, you're afraid. <laughs> and there's all of this. Uh, and I was like, nah, I just can't be bothered, dude. Like, I, like nice try, but nah. <laughs> um, I said, if you want to see what I... In general, though, isn't it? It's quite nice in a way, the community on LinkedIn. It feels... Yeah, LinkedIn is cool. LinkedIn is cool. Um, there are some amazing people that I've connected with. And it's also especially good um, in connection with conferences. So if we ever get back to that situation where you meet people... Um, like on my journey of using LinkedIn more regularly, I, I used it as my contact list. So like, you know, the thing of exchanging business cards at conferences, then I would actually get those business cards, type them into LinkedIn, connect with people. And, and then I realized, okay, that's a good thing to do because because they update their own profiles because business cards can go out of date, right? Yes. Um, so I was doing that. And then it was like, hey, I might as well tell people when I'm going to be speaking at a conference. And then that's when that kind of whole promoting yourself came into existence like i'm going to be here in this country and and then you realize that you get more elaborate you you take pictures or you share during the conference after the conference you do video so it kind of it, it kind of uh, blossomed from that and and then I, I just kind of sustained that kind of feel-good factor but i, I think do, that do you think there's certain personality types that just don't do that or won't do that will never do that and it's like they're missing out or is it kind of what's the uh, they are missing out and there are certain personality types where they, they might say, um, and, and they might be, I'm not like you, John, because you're, you know, you're a colorful person or, you know, you, um, but, but some of that is, is the performance aspect, right? It's, and it's, I'm not saying that everyone has to be kind of cracking jokes and winking at the camera 
and and kind of having that kind of YouTuber vlogger, but like, hi guys, how are you? Look down, Judge. Today I'm talking at this event. If you want to come, look down here. Like, you don't have to be that person. You could you can be an introvert, but you have to find your voice, and and what that means. If that means using podcasts, or if that means using images, but being very good with images and and slogans and stuff. But you have to find a tone and maintain that tone and, and kind of carry on doing that. That's important. Mm. But I think that a lot of time people kind of, they um, they admit defeat uh, when they haven't actually even tried. They haven't even struggled. You kind of feel like soul destroying in a way when you put someone up and it's like only three likes and one of them is your mum or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, not, uh, I don't not know, even it's, your mum. You didn't know it was your mum. You're my mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then it depends what you're doing it for. If you're doing it to be liked or if you're doing it because it's going to make you money. Like I think at the first stage, like because I, I don't do LinkedIn. Um, I'm not doing LinkedIn to monetize LinkedIn. Hmm. I'm doing LinkedIn for some specific reasons. It's a rich uh, dynamic database. That's why I'm doing LinkedIn. I'm doing LinkedIn because it's a way for me to have a rich dynamic CV, right? To amplify yeah. amplify my voice. And I'm doing LinkedIn, and that's for internal and external reasons. That's also for your colleagues within the organization, and that's for external people. And it's using that as leverage to try and make money um through getting a better job getting a speaking invitation being invited to go to a particular country like like it's being out there um and you need to have enough material there for people to kind of decide and shop at their leisure basically when, when you're not around and i think the final thing is to create some kind of legacy which is that you can reflect upon what you've been doing this year it is cool you've been able to go through your history for the last year and kind of jog your memory right and that, all of that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with how many views, hits, or likes you get. Yeah. So for me, the long game is don't chase those things. Mm. I go with that intention. And there are some posts that I might think are amazing, but, you know, they get forgotten easily. Like you might just like get a couple of likes or something. And then there are other posts, which nothing special. Because mm. a load of a load of hits. Like, like I remember posting something where um, a picture of a bargain bucket from KFC of chicken and gravy. <laughs> Tons of views. <laughs> Loads of likes. I learned that people on LinkedIn like chicken too. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it defied logic. And at the time, I actually had two posts. I had one where I had a selfie uh, with an Instagram influencer with 5 million followers. Mm. And, and I, you know, I'd been interviewing her. I'd done a vlog with her. And I had some research coming out about taking selfies and stuff. And then I had a bargain bucket picture of chicken they both perform the same on linkedin yeah <laughs> so i learned like it seems obvious but i learned that like just because somebody has five million followers on instagram doesn't mean that they have followers on linkedin or that it's interesting to a linkedin audience yes and just because and there are lots of just becauses um could be the wrong time of day could be like you know there are any number of reasons why but the chicken did it Every time, man. It's all we've got sometimes is food. People like food. It's universal, right? It's good. And you saw that with the Dundee cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, even that story, like, you know, like when you think about like, um, so I I got my second doctorate from Dundee and and that's why I was there last year at the graduation. And, the, and they took a picture of me and I was wearing a kill and because um, I got like a, it's called a doctor of letters. So 
it's the first time that Dundee had awarded it in 18 years. Oh. Right. So that's why they got me a photographer. It was like, let me take a good picture of Johnny. Right. And that picture LinkedIn loved like guy with an Afro and a kilt. That's from his, that's like from his family, his clan. Wow. Okay. So they used it again this year to celebrate Black History Month at the university. So do you mind if we, so yeah, yeah, use the Afro picture, why not? And I shared it on LinkedIn and said, I'm so happy to have been used in this in this Facebook campaign. It, and, and I miss Fisher, and, actually, did I, yeah, I said Fisher and Donaldson, like some cream cake and, 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 and some Dundee cake. And then that can, that patisserie contacted me and said, we're going to send you a hamper of stuff. Wow. So it's I got like Dundee like- cake, all the really pies. dots right you know I, i've kind of met so many people authors pick a book off the shelf and find them tag them in a post send them a nice compliment and then before you know it, you're on a zoom call with them it's like wow that's cool yeah i mean and, and that's it i i didn't do it looking to get free cake hmm. i did it because genuinely i thought okay I'm, I'm i was in the content creator's mind of i just want to rather than just say i'm so happy to be associated with dundee i thought let me enrich the message with kind of, you know, the cultural aspects for people that haven't been to Dundee, because that's also part of branding, which is that you link yourself to those memories that you have. And I have genuine memories of missing Dundee cake and coffee towers from Fisher and Donaldson. Yes. And so it was, it was genuine and I put it there and that's when they were like, okay, wow. And, you know, and they got some good coverage too, because I, return the favor by taking but they didn't ask me to take pictures but i wanted to celebrate them i'm like here's me with my dundee cake thanks fisher and donaldson and <laughs> okay maybe i hope that they'd send me another hamper but but you know but it was genuinely saying thank you and so yeah joining the dots was going out there and yeah you have to think creatively in in, in a lateral way but i'm not forcing what it is that i'm doing i'm mm. just trying to kind of just enjoy yeah push people live life to the full but but kind of but and then think about joining those those dots it is that sort of randomness you know when you traveled you went to poland or whatever slovakia paris and you yeah. bump into some random person or you know whether it's just yes. in a car and then you can make this connection it's so much fun right it's so random it just makes your night your weekend yes and, uh, and whether it's some commonality or someone just takes an interest in you and you have this cool friendship forms and you can get that on a daily basis on linkedin in some respects it's like it's weird yeah. I find it weird. No, it's cool. And and I think that the, what happens is that a lot of people don't, the light bulb doesn't go off where they think this is a serendipitous moment. How can I make it even more powerful? Like, how can I capitalize on this? And I think that, that's probably one of my strengths that if mm-hmm. I do bump into somebody or meet someone, I, I know how to kind of get the best use out of that experience. Yes. And part of that also means that you have to kind of be prepared and thinking um, and and that thinking also means you have to know enough about other people. Yes. So that when you do like bump into that celebrity and you can say, oh, I loved your program where you said this thing in like 2001. And and, and because lots of people say to them, hell, I really like your stuff. Hmm. But not many people say like are, are nerdy enough to say, I really like that thing in that year when you did that. And you're like, oh, really? Tell me more. Like, because that's the thing that gets them interested. In the same way as in business, you say, yeah, I like what your company did in this advertising campaign, blah, 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 blah. And they go like, oh, right. So you're not just like, you know, you're not just blowing smoke at me. You're not just like just saying things for the sake of saying things. They're not just platitudes. You actually really seem to know something. And that's when 
I find that people's ears prick up and they go, okay, tell me more. And it's that tell me more that then I'm able to convert into some kind of um, meaningful business engagement. Yes, that's phenomenally powerful. And it's weird, I came from this oil and gas engineering world where my feed was just full of boring corporate rubbish. And then during (laughs) lockdown, I was just connecting to people in marketing and branding and advertising journalists and a real diverse range of people. And then my feed sort of comes to life now. But it's really interesting, the introverted engineers back from my old network, if you like, they don't really engage or they're worried because there's a corporate them that is, can't express themselves. Yeah, Whereas- but they're watching. They're watching. And I think, and, and they will change perhaps slowly. And, and sometimes I do wonder about, you know, you spoke about the um, the cringe factor. So so one thing is that, that people watch, but they don't necessarily like or comment. So mm. and, and you don't realize until you see them face to face at a conference. And, and then, and I've asked people, so be honest, do you think like I'm being an idiot? if I post that picture where I'm pulling like an ugly face, I'm like, no, 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 you're brave. Like, mm. oh, that's the, what I wanted to hear because I thought that you might think I was an idiot. So sometimes you have to realize that you're not going to get the feedback that's going to encourage you unless you actually still in a kind of, you know, analog way, engage with people face-to-face, real human beings, and sit uh, down and listen to what they have to say. I find out about that because I'm still doing business development in Aberdeen and you speak to like clients from old or new clients and then they're really kind of more engaged with the story than they ever let on. And it's just weird, you know, it's just like, wow, I wish I could do that. I wish I'd, you know, it's like, well, why don't you, man? It's like, it's because they're worried, they're sitting in their their office worried about how they'll be judged by other people, I guess, is a big part of it, perhaps. But Yeah, and, and just the fact that not everyone can handle negative criticism. So it could just take one person, one line manager, or one comment on your feed to say, what a jerk. And they go, ah! I, I told you it's not for me, but it's like... Yeah. Gonna... You think coming back full circle, to, and you've, you've been very generous with your time as well, but like, you know, all the kind of the, I don't know, discrimination, the mild abuse that you got when you're younger from, from the outside world, does that harden you to now that you don't care it, it, to some extent and um, more resilient to it? I think you always care. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always care, but you learn how to deal with those things. It's It's like as a parent, like, you know, you never stop worrying about your kids, but but you learn how to manage that worry. Otherwise, you'll never let them do anything. Because when you... But you would say you kind of, you've, you've learned to rise above it and then also kill people with kindness, right? That's your your persona now, you'd say, right? That you I try, feel- but sometimes I have a rugged day. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you've got to annihilate them. You've got to spit better bars at them. You've got to have like, you know, you've got to have better one-liners and cusses, like, you know, your mums or whatever. Um there's nothing wrong with that but but yeah i think that you you just learn but i'd like to think uh, i suppose i i reflect a lot more and often late at night at the end of the day or the end of the year or whatever it is and just think how do i want to be it goes back to that point how do i want to be remembered and the people that i admire those iconic people those leaders were able to handle these tricky situations Mm. you can't knock everybody out yeah and you can't shoot everybody down you can't like you know you can't belittle everybody every now and again you've got to show humility you've got to admit defeat you've got to say i don't know you know and 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 so it's it's that gray area that i spend a lot more time in which is why i wouldn't want someone to close the door on me because i know that you know if you follow history at some stage both you and i are going to be called something uh, like we we could think that we're open-minded and easygoing and tolerant and then in 10 years time we're going to be old fuddy duddies who are, a younger generation is going to say my god i can't believe you think like that how disgusting resign 
you know, you know, delete your account, whichever social media platform we're on in 10 years time. And you're like, damn. So it's, it's kind of that feeling that like, you know, what goes around comes around. So yeah. And the other ways you gotta, you gotta protect yourself. Just be around things that you like. Hmm. If you don't like racists, avoid them. <laughs> if you want to learn how they think, hang out with them. If you get a kick out of like converting them, then do so. Like, you know? And so, yeah, I think there've been times in my life where, where you just kind of, you, you live for those moments where like sometimes, yeah, maybe you get a kick out of dating someone whose dad is a racist. Cause you're like, <laughs> this must really hurt you right now. <laughs> Where's your wife from? Is she from Manchester, London? Though? She's from London. Okay, cool. She's, so so yeah so even like there's a yeah there's a cultural divide because i'm from manchester she's from london we have like cultural differences like that you know london people don't open the door hmm. like you know, like when the doorbell rings they think oh, who's ringing my doorbell whereas in manchester it's like oh someone's at the door scotland is even, people are even more friendly like you know yeah, someone... so it's they say in edinburgh it's you know you've had your, you'll have had your dinner so, yeah, yeah. Like that sort of, it's the capital city thing again. Like Paris gets it as well, I guess. Yeah, you'll have had yeah. your dinner. <laughs> but like the whole idea of like first footing. Did yeah, you, you must have done first footing, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, it was a big thing back home. Yeah, yeah. So after Hogmanay, hmm. then I was in pole position. Hmm. I'm the tall, dark guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can knock on people's door. <laughs> Come in, have a drink. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was I was that lucky I was that magical Negro I was that like you know literally it was like Aladdin it's like seriously like yeah after Hogmanay <laughs> it's I think it would be fun to be the black dude in in Scotland right because people intrigued and, and and generally majority of people would be right and if and... if you're in the right headspace mm. if you feel like it's not going to hurt you and and that that was the thing that sometimes like you know. And you don't know how racism is going to be like, you know, whether that's the, the like um, some of the academics that are teaching you might have a bias against you or like, you know, or like you're playing rugby and, and you get you get kicked a little bit harder. Um, I mean, it's, it's managing those things or, or like people chase you like after a couple of drinks on a Friday night, you're, you know, which has happened. You're having to hide because you're going to get the crap beaten out of you no. or you go in a taxi and the taxi driver says, oh, I know where you live. I was like, how do you know where I live? He's like, because you're the black guy that lives up, up the hill. I was like, what? <laughs> so then it's those moments then you think like, okay, I'm not in control of my life. Hmm. And, and I don't know if it's benefiting me. But if, but if you can avoid those things, then yeah. But no, ultimately, look, I'm a proud Scot. I love Scotland. Scotland is yeah. a cool place, right? If Scotland wants to employ me right now, you know, <laughs> get, get me my farm, <laughs> so I can live my Lenny Kravitz life in Ochenshugel, then I'll do that. <laughs> I've got I've got my brothers are tenant farmers, but there's there's land there that you, if you need it, Jonathan. If you ever stuck, we'll get you a bit of bit of land sorted. <laughs> oh, okay. So universities in Scotland, then you've <laughs> yeah, we can I'm... we can do this all the time. We can podcast, we can stream all the time. But yeah, I think Scotland is an amazing place as well because as a brand, if you think about how we're perceived globally whether that's even if it's like you know braveheart or stuff but i think there's a there's a lot going on for scotland and i think that it's um we haven't really maxed out the potential of scotland 
even like little things like Irwilly, Haggis, whiskey, you know, there's so much like tartans. There's loads, there's loads of worldwide. stuff. Yeah. There's loads of stuff that, that we that we could be doing. And, and I think that we are missing the point. So if Scotland could do more branding, that'd be great. I guess quite, uh, you know, it's been railroaded by the independence thing a bit. And it's kind of, yeah. where the Scotland flag is kind of almost a political symbolism thing now. And it's a bit like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, what it's, it's probably not the nicest way to end a, a podcast, which thanks been awesome. It's been great speaking to you, man. Yeah, you too. It's been amazing. And uh, if you're ever in Glasgow, give me a shout. I'll treat you to a beer for sure. Nice one. And have a nice, have a nice Christmas with the family and, and uh, yeah, get some rest as well, hopefully. Yeah, and happy Hogmanay. Happy Hogmanay when it comes. Yeah, we'll get the first foot in for sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. And uh, nice speaking to you. Thank you very much. Nice one. Peace Take out. care. All the best, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Professor Jonathan Wilson. It was great to spend a bit of time with him. And uh, yeah, a good, a good laugh too. Uh, so this is the last episode of the year. And next year, we plan to come back with, yeah, more interesting guests, quite a, an energy transition theme we're going to run in first first few months of the year, as well as some more episodes with experts in culture and consultancy. So uh, yeah, hopefully you have a, a nice 2021 and loads of time with the family between Christmas and New Year. And uh, yeah, it's a bit of a hassle, the travel restrictions, no doubt, but hopefully you, you uh, yeah enjoy your time off and all the best for 2021. Cheers. Thank you.